0: I got a good friend named Chris, and uh, Chris played football down at Fort Hayes State University down in Kansas. And he stuck with it, even though Chris never played very much. And before his junior season, his coach called him into his office and, and started talking to Chris about the iceberg principle. You know what the iceberg principle is? This gets applied in different ways. But basically, it always goes back to this truth. The thing about icebergs is we only ever see a very small portion of any iceberg. Right? The reason it floats is because the overwhelming majority of the iceberg sticks down in the water and displaces enough water that makes a little bit of it stick out of the top. Now, why was Chris's football coach talking to me about icebergs? Well, this was the coach's way of explaining to Chris that though his contributions to the team would be important and would be foundational and would really help the team rise to be what it was going to be, none of his contributions would ever be visible to anyone else outside the team because Chris wasn't going to play. Uh, And that that was Chris's experience with the Iceberg Principle. It's true in a lot of areas of life. There's often a lot that goes on that people don't see. And I think God's work in the world is a little bit like the iceberg principle. It's not that um, we can't see and understand some things that God does in our world, great things. It's not that we can't read back through the scriptures and and read of times when When God's work was obvious and apparent, we praise God for those things. But most of the time, I think the stuff God is doing in the world is more like this part of the iceberg. I think God is at work in ways we will just never understand. Paul has promised us in the book of Romans recently that all things... Are gonna work together for the good of those who love God, and somehow that's true, but isn't it hard to sometimes to tell that's actually happening? Like right now, God, right now you're working this toward my good. That's the promise. God is keeping his promises even when we can't tell. God is, is keeping his promises even when we can't see. Sometimes we can't see how God is keeping his promises simply because we can't see how God is keeping his promises. It's below the surface. Well, last week we started a new section in the book of Romans. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 go together. And in these chapters, Paul is answering basically one big question about some of God's promises that in Paul's day certainly looked, it looked like God wasn't keeping these promises. The promises have to do with the nation of Israel. Last week, I, we, we called the sermon last week, What About Israel? That's this section. This is the What About Israel section of the book of Romans. We introduced this section last week. Very quickly, here's what we've said to get you caught up to date. Paul is um, Paul's talking about Israel. God chose Israel, adopted Israel as his special nation. He chose them for, to be his people, and God made some incredible promises to Israel. God promised to sustain Israel as a nation, to save Israel as a nation, that Israel would always be a nation and God's special people. However, fast forward into the New Testament, and by Paul's day, Paul and other Christians are looking around at the people who are filling the, this, this fledgling church, and they're noticing very few of them are, are Israelites, there's very few Jews. It's predominantly Gentile. And so people start to think that there's a, there's a bit of a conundrum with Israel. It goes something like this. On one hand, God promised to save Israel. On the other hand, now through Christ, God has promised to save only those who believe but when Jesus went to the cross, he was hanging there under the punishment I deserve for my sin and you deserve for yours. That's the gospel. The New Testament makes clear. The book of Romans makes clear. Jesus himself makes clear. You, you don't love God if you reject Jesus and the gospel. And so here's the commandment. It seems like God is going to have to fudge on or go back on one of these promises. Either God's going to find a different way to save Israel besides the gospel, or, or God's going to have to give up his promise to save Israel because they're just not believing in Jesus. They've rejected Jesus. So what gives? And that quickly turns into a conundrum for us. This is not just a history lesson. This is why Paul wrote this to the church. Here's why it's a problem for you and me. God gave us similar promises to the promises he gave Israel. They're distinct, but they're similar. God adopted Israel as, its, as his chosen nation. Paul told us, God adopted us when we believed in Jesus. Jesus. God told Israel, you'll never like cease to be before me, that my relationship with Israel will be eternal. God promised us, you'll never cease to be before me, my relationship with you will be eternal. Nothing can separate us from the love of God we have in Christ Jesus. But if God is not keeping those similar promises to Israel, and the fact of the matter is in Paul's day and in today's day too, most descendants of Israel, most Israelis, most Jews, when they die, they don't go to heaven. They go to hell. So how, how can God be keeping His promise to Israel and keeping whom most of them are not saved and keeping His promise to us that the gospel is the only way to be saved? How can we be sure that God's going to keep His promise to us if we're not convinced God is going to keep his promise to Israel. That's why this is important. Today, Paul's going to begin to flesh out. That's the problem. He's introduced it. He's going to begin to explain why both of these things are true. The gospel is the only way people can be saved. The gospel is the only way God can point his power at someone in a way where God's power rescues that person instead of condemns that person. It's the only way. Last week, um, Paul already said he mourns. He has all this pain in his heart because he knows his countrymen. The Israelis are not, they're not saved. They're not redeemed. They're not heaven bound. But Paul's going to start teaching today, that does not mean that God is not keeping all of his promises to Israel because he is. Let's, uh, let's read our passage today. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. And they read this way. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For there are not all Israel who are descended from Israel nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and share, Sarah, shall, share shall have, Sarah is going to sell seashells by the seashore, But I'm going to try verse 9 again. This is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Amen. Verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay. This is, there's no low-hanging fruit in, uh, in Romans 9, 10, 11. Man, these are thinkers. This is the most difficult section of the book for sure. Not necessarily this paragraph, but this section. Today, here's what Paul does. Paul is going to state his his sort of main proposition, and the rest of it supports it. Here's his main proposition. The first part of verse 6. It's not as though the word of God had failed. Or it's not as though the word of God has failed. That's the main idea. Last week, Paul said, It breaks my heart that all my fellow Jews are going to hell when they die because they rejected Christ. Now he says, but don't get me wrong. That does not mean that God's promises to Israel have failed. They haven't. And then Paul says, I'm going to give you two reasons in this paragraph, two reasons why that's true. Even though Israel rejects Christ, most Israelites, Israelis, Jews may be winding up in hell. That does not mean God's promises to save Israel have failed. That seems contradictory. It's not. Two reasons why. First, not all those who are descended from Israel are truly Israel. I would restate that reason this way. Not all of the physical descendants of the man named Israel are included in all all the promises God gave to the nation. And second, nor are all the children of Abraham's true descendants, rather through Isaac your descendants shall be counted. Second, it was never God's promise or plan to save everyone in this family that, that became a nation. That's the main idea. God's going to keep his promise to Israel. Well, Paul, why are all these Jews dying unsaved, unredeemed, and they're going to hell? Because God never promised to save every individual Israelite in order to keep his promises to the nation. And every individual Israelite is not a child of the promise. And now Paul's going to say, he's going to give us two examples to teach us it's always been that way with Israel. Now, now, Before we can understand any of this, any of this today, any of the next two and three quarters chapters, we have to understand something of what God promised to Israel. So I've got to give you just the Cliff's Notes version, a very tiny peek at what God promised Israel. And before we can even understand that, we have to go back even further to the first promise God ever made of a Savior. Clear back in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Sin has entered the world. Adam and Eve sinned, Paul said, and so death came in through their sin and spread to all mankind and the curse fell upon the world. And as soon as the first sin happened, God made this promise. He's speaking. I took out some of the U's and put uh, the the antecedent of the pronoun so we would understand who he's talking to. God said this to the serpent, the devil. God said, I'm going to put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between the serpent's offspring and her offspring, and then about that singular offspring or seed. God said, he, that offspring of the woman, will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will strike his heel. Genesis 3.15, that's the first promise that God's going to get a Savior to get us out of this mess. God said, Adam and Eve, you ate from that tree over there, I'll kill you. Spoiler alert, they ate from the tree. And that's why we're in this mess. Paul talked about that earlier in Romans. But God didn't plunge us into that without hope. From the very beginning of sin, God said, "I'm going to send uh, someone who's going to crush the serpent. He's this, he's not going to go unscathed. The serpent's going to strike his heel." That's Christ. That's the cross. Right. It's the first promise of a Savior. From that moment on, one of the main themes running through the entire Old Testament. Is we're looking for the serpent crusher, the curse reverser. Sometimes I am so ready for God to call it a wrap on this whole world. Um, the serpent has been crushed, but the battle rages, right? Who will he be? All we know at Genesis 3.15 is he's going to be a human being because he's going to be a descendant of the first woman. There's a clue to his identity. By the way, any descendant of Eve's, isn't that person also a descendant of Adam's too? Right? I don't want to tell you the birds and the bees here, but you know how, baby, you know where that comes from, right? It's interesting he says, this will be a descendant of Eve. This is a clue the identity of the serpent crusher he won't have a human father he will have a human mother he was born of a virgin so God obligated himself to send a savior the serpent crusher the curse reverser fast forward through the next few chapters of Genesis it doesn't go well for mankind turns out we're a total nightmare we're awful God wipes out the whole earth, starts again with only believers. Guess what? We're still awful because we're still under this curse. You know what we need? A Savior. And all we know about the Savior is going to be a human being, a descendant of the first woman. In Genesis chapter 12, God just sort of out of nowhere Appears to a guy who lives in what we call Iraq. God shows up to this Iraqi fella by the name of Abram. God later renamed him Abraham. And he gives Abram some promises. He says, Abram, if you leave your homeland in Iraq, and your, your dad's gods, and you just follow me to a place I'll tell you where to go. I will give you descendants that will grow into a nation. I will give that nation its own land and I will bless all of the families of the world through your descendants, through your family. We call that the Abrahamic covenant. Now why, why did God show up to some random Iraqi fellow and promise those things? You know why? Because God had obligated himself to send a savior. And it had to be a human being. And we all know human beings get born into families. So God had to pick somebody. He didn't pick Abraham because Abraham was better than everyone. He picked Abraham because he had to pick someone. And no matter who God picked, we would be looking at his fake picture on a slide saying, why would God pick that guy from that place? He had to pick somebody because he had promised a savior. And so he tells Abram, I'm going to build, I'm going to give you descendants and they're going to become a nation. That nation became Israel. That land became the promised land. Here's where it was promised. And the worldwide blessing, I'll bless all the families of the earth through your family, is the Messiah, the Savior, the serpent crusher, the curse reverser came from that family, Israel, that lived in that land, Palestine, and it's bigger than that, but we'll leave it there for now. And all who believe in that Messiah will be eternal life. Those are the promises God made to Israel. God makes lots of other ones. I'm always going to keep you my special people. I'm going to save you forever and ever. You're always going to have a king on all those things. But it's because he promised to send a Savior. But here's one thing God never promised Israel He never promised every single individual Israelite would get every promise God ever made. He never made that promise. That's what's throwing people off in Paul's day. Okay. Paul's going to give two examples in our passage today of two boys that were descendants of Abraham to prove this point. God doesn't have to save all of the Jews or even most of them in order to be keeping his promises to Israel. The first example is the example of Isaac. So so far God promised Abraham you're going to have a descendant and he's going to grow into a great nation. time to tell you the whole story of Abraham's family but Abraham uh, was told he will have a son named Isaac and that is the son of the promise that is the son that this nation God promised will come from I don't know if you know the story but by the time Abraham and Sarah had Isaac they already Abraham already had another son and if you fast forward from there and read the story of Abraham's funeral, Abraham had six other sons by a different gal named Keturah. So Abraham had at least six, seven, eight sons. But God said, Isaac is the son through whom I'm going to make this special nation that I promised you to bless the whole world through. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise. Um, Not everyone who was born through normal biology from Abraham got to be included in those promises God made to Abraham. Does that make sense? Ishmael, not part of the promise. The sons of Keturah, not part of the promise. Why not? Because God chooses some, and He doesn't choose other others. The same way God chose Abraham from Iraq, and He could have chose some Native American from Nebraska. Why? Because He had to pick somebody, and that didn't stop once He picked Abraham. Now here's the objection. God didn't just pick Isaac and not pick those other ones. Isaac is the only son Abraham should have ever had. Isn't that true? Why did Abraham have Ishmael? Because he didn't believe God would keep his promise to give him a descendant. So he took matters into his own hand. And his wife, Sarah, said, here, take my maidservant, have a baby with her. Maybe God will keep his promise that way. So it's easy to look at this story and say, well, of course, God picked Isaac. Isaac was the only son Abraham should have had. The rest of those sons don't count. Paul is aware of that objection. He says, before you can even make that objection, let me pull up my second example. Let's tell you, let's go one more generation below Isaac. Isaac, to his credit, um, His wife was named Rebecca. She only had kids by one man. Isaac only had one wife. Rebecca got pregnant. And while Rebecca was pregnant, God visited her and gave her the first sonogram in world history. Do you know this? He did. God shows up, visits, speaks with Rebecca, and tells her, Rebecca, I got some good news and some bad news. The bad news is there's two of them in there. (laughs) The good news is one of them is going to be the son of the promise. While she was still pregnant, God said the older is going to serve the younger. The younger twin boy, his name is going to be Jacob. He's going to be the preeminent one. He's going to be the son of the promise. Jacob is the one who grows up and God renames this guy Israel. And all of Jacob's kids become the nation of Israel. Do you see how this story takes away the objection to the last one? Well, of course, God chose Isaac. He's the only son Abraham should have had. Those other ones were were sinful. Shouldn't have had them. So God had to use the good one. Well, then how do you explain this story? Because God chose Jacob before they were born, before either of them had done anything good or bad. Why? So that God's purpose in choosing one would stand just because God chooses some. Well, you might say, maybe God knew, of course God knew he God. God knew how Jacob would turn out. So God chose Jacob and not Esau, Because God knew Jacob would grow into this man of great faith and character to which I would reply, read the story. Because Jacob was a lying, manipulative, sneak. God did not choose Jacob because he was a better person. They hadn't been born yet. God chose Jacob because God Chose one and not the other, and that's that's just why. To carry these promises, to carry these promises. Now, I want to deal with verse thirteen because it's a focus sucker. If we don't get verse thirteen, uh, if we don't understand verse thirteen, we read this it sounds so harsh. that it's like it's hard to get past. It just sucks all our focus into that verse. This is a quote from the prophet Malachi. God, through Malachi, said this, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Does that sound harsh? It does. This, is a, this uses an ancient Semitic uh, figure of speech where when someone wants to use a, wants to highlight a contrast between two things, he uses the strongest possible language. We do this sometimes. Usually ours is more just overstatement, like that was the worst lunch I've ever had in my whole life. Right? Um, Jesus used the same figure of speech. Check this one out. In Luke 14, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and hate his own mother and hate his wife and hate his kids and hate his siblings he can't even be my disciple does Jesus want you to hate your parents and your wife and your kids and your siblings some of the young people here are like Jesus said I can hate my siblings dad so get off my back No. He wants to highlight a contrast between these two things. My loyalty and my love for Jesus must be so much greater than anything that even my love for my wife and my kids would seem like hate in comparison. Now, if we read the rest of the New Testament, he wants us to love those people. In fact, the more I love Jesus, what will happen with my love for those other people? it won't shrink, it will grow, it will improve. The more I love Jesus, the better husband I'll be to my wife and father I'll be to my kids and brothers, brother I'll be to my brothers and so forth. But, so this is a figure of speech, but I still want to teach you about it. What was going on when God said, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated? Thank you for asking. Here's the story. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Um, when Malachi was, had his preaching career, here's what was going on. The nation of the Judah was all that was left. They had been ripped out of the land, taken to Babylon. They were slaves in captivity in Babylon. God allowed them to come back home to Judah, but they did not live happily ever after. When Malachi was preaching, these post-exilic Jews lived a life where they were always unsafe. Their enemies were everywhere. They didn't have anything to protect themselves by way of a military. Uh, They were economically broken. They were poor. They were impoverished. So they're unsafe. They're impoverished. Even the place where they go to worship the temple to them looks like a piece of junk. And so they start complaining. And God, the prophet Malachi first says this, He basically says, ah, man, I sure do love all you guys there in Jerusalem. I sure do love my people. And they go, what the heck are you talking about, God? How can you say you love us? Look around. We're poor. We're unsafe. The temple's a piece of junk. If you loved us, wouldn't things be better? And you know what God's answer was? Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. Here's why that's the answer. God says, you mean to tell me. You look across the river at the Edomites, the the, the descendants of Esau. You think, because they have more money than you. That they have a better military than you. That they're like pagan temples are prettier than yours. You think that means I love them more than I love you? I chose Jacob. Which just means you guys are the ones that get to be the children of the promise. You have all the advantage that pointed you to me. You know me everybody else is worshiping some fake God that's going to get them nowhere. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. So the whole point of these examples is again, God not saving all of Abraham's descendants or all of Isaac's descendants does not mean that God was not being faithful to Israel. Just two examples. God chose Isaac God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. God chose Jacob and not Esau. Do you think that stopped? Or do you think a pattern has been established? God chose Abraham and not anyone else on earth. God chose Isaac and not any of the rest of Abraham's sons. God chose Jacob and not Esau. That didn't stop with Jacob. Jacob. Brought one more generation down. Jacob has a bunch of sons. Only one of them is a halfway decent guy. His name's Joseph. The rest of them are awful. They're just a mess, just like you and me. But he has this one son whom he loves, who's such a good boy and he was a good boy in slavery in Egypt, and he saved the whole nation. And God had to decide, i am got to choose one of all these sons to be the son of the promise where the Messiah is going to come through. Who does God pick? Does he pick the good son, Joseph? No. Does he pick the oldest son, Reuben? No. He picks this guy somewhere in the middle named Judah. And let me tell you quickly about Judah. He's kind of a slimeball. He raised such slimeball sons, God ripped them out of the world and killed them on the spot. This is not a merit-based system we are dealing with here. God chooses some, and praise God, he chooses slimeballs and idiots. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul says, all those who are descended from Israel aren't true to Israel. It's always been this way. Do you know, all of the Edomites, all of the Arabs, are just as genetically related to Abraham as all of the Jews? They are. But they're not all children of the promise. It's always been this way. Read through the Old Testament. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. You get to First Kings and Second Kings and you'll read about the kings of Israel. What kind of people are they? Are they believing, faithful people who are in heaven right now? Most of them aren't. God has never saved all of these people. He's never saved all of anyone. And most of us know all too well He doesn't even save everyone in our families. And somehow God is still good, and God still is keeping all of his promises, even when we can't tell what he's doing. What do we learn from all of that? First is when we make the screen, but first and foremost, Paul is still clear the only way anyone's getting to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's how God chose to save some. But aside from that, for us, Paul's very clear at first that, that most Jews are lost. That does not mean God is not keeping his promises to Israel. God is going to keep his promises to Israel. Here's how very briefly it's going to go down. Someday Israel is going to continue to exist. The fact that there is a nation called Israel today is an unbelievable miracle. Um, have you ever seen, have you seen any Babylonians running around lately? They are way greater people than Israel. They're gone. You seen any Phoenicians lately? No, well, they're gone. Most ancient people are just gone. This little tiny group of people that everyone always hated is still around. You know why? Because God will keep his promises to Israel. And one day he's going to save that nation. One day, through supernatural events, before the Lord returns again, he's going to make sure Israel accepts Jesus as its Messiah. And he will reign on earth over it and the rest of us. Second, God is good, and God is keeping his promises even when we can't tell. That is so important to believe. One of our biggest problems, I know I say this all the time, but we try try to hold God accountable to keep promises he never made. It's so easy to be like the people of Judah and go, God, if you really loved me, I wouldn't have these financial problems. I'd like my job better. I wouldn't be lonely. Whatever. God never made those promises. That's so why we need to find, it, find the ones God did make and bank on those. Third thing this uh, passage teaches, reminds us, is that just God does not save on the basis of morality, on the basis of character, on merit. Paul told us in Romans 5, do you remember what kind of people God saved? According to Romans 5, here's what kind. God, so God saved helpless, wicked sinners who were his enemies. God doesn't save the good or else he couldn't save anyone. So make sure not depending upon promises God never made. This whole what about Israel problem isn't really a problem just believing in false assumptions that make it such. Uh, one last thing true Israel, I skipped over. Israel is still Israel. It will always be a nation. True, who, call, who Paul calls true Israel, are descendants of Jacob. You can't be an Israelite if, if, if Jacob is not your great, 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 great granddad. Sorry. I mean, you just can't be. It's a family. So true Israel are those descendants of, of Jacob who have believed. We'll talk next week about where the rest of us Gentiles fit in. But true Israel are are believing Israelites. Let's pray and we'll finish our time together. Father God, thank you for your word, even the hard parts, even the difficult to understand parts, the difficult to teach parts. God, thank you for the reminder that you are good even when our circumstances aren't. And thank you that we can depend on your promises even when we look around and and it seems like you're not keeping them. Help us to trust the promises you have made and not hold you accountable for promises that you haven't. And thank you for sending uh, the Messiah, the Christ, to die under the penalty our sins deserve. We love you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.